serve as one of the pastors here, and uh, I missed you last Sunday. I was at home in Wichita uh, celebrating the holiday with uh, my family, so it's good to be back here uh, with you this morning. Uh, my family has a long-standing tradition uh, when it comes to the 4th of July. It's one of those holidays when my mom's entire side of the family gets together for a big reunion, and about 10 years ago, uh, all my cousins and I, we, I have lots of cousins, mostly guys, we all decided uh, we kind of gotten tired of just blowing stuff up all day for the 4th of July and uh, decided that we would start playing golf together, which I thought was a fitting, we talk about golf, or we like to hit a ball that way, as Naya said uh, here, so I, I thought I'd bring this in. We started playing golf together uh, each year, nothing fancy, just a uh, simple outing, a way to celebrate the holiday together. Uh, well, over the last six to seven years, this little golf outing has really taken on a life of its own. We now have a name for it. It's called the Black Cat Classic, uh, which is cool. I mean, black cats, right? Fireworks. Um, and what kind of outing uh, worth anything doesn't have a name, right? So we call it the Black Cat Classic. There's a trophy um, with engraving on it and everything. Golf, winning golf balls, firecrackers in there. Uh, the whole works. Team captains. I am one of the team captains, which will tell you all you need to know about how competitive this thing is. Um, I'm not near as good as uh, Tim likes to talk about himself being here. Uh, <laughs> he's every bit that good. I should just say that. There's plenty of trash talk throughout the year. Uh, it's become quite the competition. A yearly showdown that seems way more important than it really is, right? Contests have a way of doing that, you know, that the hype can outlive the actual event. But the contest that we, came, we come to in our text this morning in this story that, that Noah just set up for us is anything but unimportant. 450 prophets of Baal, one prophet of Yahweh, the God of Israel, all gathered on a mountain for an epic showdown, throwdown of the gods, an ancient story, right, this happened a long time ago, is everything that we're reading about in 1 Kings did. An ancient story that has everything to do with our worship, our work, everything in between for us here today. In contests, right, they always show us something about the contestants, and that's certainly true in this story. What is God trying to show us about himself in this story? About ourselves, about his people about the nature of false gods? Those are our questions for this morning. Before we get into the story, as we always do, let's ask for God's help uh, to hear uh, his word, for me to speak his word after him. Join me in prayer uh, to our God together. Father, I, I know I need your help this morning in speaking your word, and we all need your spirit's teaching and guidance and conviction and encouragement as we hear your word. So as I always pray, where I speak my own words, would those fall away and be forgotten quickly, but where I speak your word after you, God, would you do, do the work of changing our hearts and minds to become more like your own? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a little bit of context as a reminder to set up our story in 1 Kings chapter 18. The prophets of the Lord have been in hiding for some time now, including Elijah. It's not a good time to be one of God's prophets, to be a mouthpiece for Yahweh. Ahab is the king, and remember 
He's a bad dude. He continues to lead God's people into, the, into worship of Baal and Asherah and false gods. Put simply, things are not good. It's a dark day for God's people. And that's the setting for what I think is a pretty epic story this morning. In fact, Nathan and I were just talking. Of all the things that you would want to witness in person, and there are amazing stories in the Old Testament. This has got to be at the top of your list, what happens here in 1 Kings 18. And as you listen to this fascinating story, I want to encourage you just to consider two really simple questions all the way through. They're, they're very simple and could be applied to most Old Testament stories as you, as you read or listen. But just two questions. First, what do we find out about God in this story? What do you learn? What do you, when you hear this amazing story, what do you learn about Yahweh, the God of Israel? And second, what do we learn about his people, Israel? What do we find out about them? Let those two questions, as a listener, just guide you as a framework for the story. But let's pick it up in chapter 18, right at the very beginning, verses 1 and 2. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. We'll stop there. Elijah has been in hiding after many days, and God says to him, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah, and he calls him out to confront the, the evil king of Israel, Ahab. And then we're told he'll bring the much-needed rain to the earth, right? We're in the middle, middle of a severe famine, a drought, and the author introduces us to a new character right at the top here, Obadiah. Now, not, not the Obadiah of the book. That's, that comes later. This Obadiah is an official in King Ahab's government, his administration. And the author tells us that he's a rare breed. He fears the Lord. He's actually part of this, this evil government, and yet he fears the Lord. In fact, he's put his life on the line to save prophets during a time when Jezebel was just slaughtering them left and right. He's serving God in a godless place. And we're told here right at the beginning of the story, Ahab has a, has a mission to find food and water for the animals. The king himself is personally going to search for provisions for the animals. It's that bad. And so Ahab and, and, and Obadiah, they divide and conquer. Ahab goes one way, Obadiah goes the other in search for food and water. And remember, God has called Elijah out of hiding to confront Ahab. And along the way, Obadiah and Elijah meet one another. And Obadiah recognizes him immediately and freaks out, we're told. Because Elijah's presence can only mean one thing, judgment. And Obadiah thinks that he is in for it himself. Elijah's apparently that guy that only comes to fire you at work, right? He's the guy that comes to deliver bad news. And so Obadiah launches into this, this defense of himself, right? Surely I'm not worthy of death. I've feared the Lord since my youth. And, and Obadiah is right. He's not in for death. He's misread the situation. Elijah isn't out to confront Obadiah. He's out to see Ahab, and he makes a promise with Obadiah. Look, go get Ahab. You'll be safe. Bring him to me, and that's what he does. And Elijah and Ahab finally meet, verses 17 and 18. This is what Noah read for us. It says this, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel. But you have, in your father's house, 
because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. So Ahab blames Elijah for the famine, right? You're the one that's caused all this trouble for us, the reason why we have no food and water. He calls him the troubler of Israel. But the real trouble facing Israel, as Elijah points out, is not drought. Israel doesn't have a water problem, not really, not primarily. They have a worship problem. And Elijah sets out to make that clear with a showdown of the gods. Who is the real troubler of God's people? Let's set the record straight, Elijah says. And he tells Ahab to gather, bring everybody to the mountain. Bring everyone to Mount Carmel, the whole nation of Israel, all of Baal's prophets, all of Asherah's prophets. Get them all together. There's going to be an epic contest. Verse 21. So Elijah's words to the nation of Israel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, if Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Elijah Elijah shoots them straight. Either follow Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of your ancestors, or Baal. Because, see, Israel had not turned from God, not completely. Actually, it's almost worse than that. They are keeping him around as their mistress as they also worship Baal. So Elijah calls the people to decide who they will worship. Who is truly the most powerful and living God, Yahweh or Baal? 450 of Baal's prophets versus Elijah. The eyes of the entire nation watching. ESPN would be all over this. And here are the terms of the contest, verse 23 and 24. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I'll prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put, fi- and, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire. He is God. Each side gets a bull on the altar, and their God must answer with fire. It's simple as that. And all the people agreed to it. They said, yep, that sounds like a good plan. So the prophets of Baal, they win the coin toss. They go first. They pray over, for over three hours for Baal to answer them, and no one answers. So Elijah starts talking trash. Verse 27. I love this. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he is musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep, must be awakened. It's okay to chuckle here. This is supposed to be funny. This is supposed to be humorous. Maybe he's out of the office, or maybe he's taking a nap, or he's in the bathroom. I don't know. Keep keep trying, right? He's going to hear you. He's a god, after all. And still no one answers. They even begin to cut themselves, as they would sometimes do to try to get Baal's attention. It's a play at manipulating their God. And in fact, it's a sad, tragic scene of futile bloodshed. Verse 29, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Baal's prophets have failed the test. Actually, Baal has failed the test. He's a no-show. 
which makes sense because he's not real. But he doesn't show up, and now it's Elijah's turn. Elijah calls everyone close. He rebuilds the altar, fitting a fitting altar for worshiping God, complete with a trench around it for catching water because Elijah wasn't just going to put an offering on the altar. He was going to soak it. Not once, not twice, but three times water is poured all over the offering, drenching drenching the wood, filling the trench, leaving no doubt that if this thing burns up, it is a supernatural act. Now, by this time, it's a new day because days began in the evening. Baal has had his day. His prophets have pled morning, af- midday, afternoon, nothing. Baal's day is over. And at the dawning of the new day, Yahweh's day, Elijah simply prays this, verse 36. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. And Yahweh answers. Boy, does he answer. Verse 38 and 39. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. It's hard to imagine. Again, like we said, this is one thing you want to see with your eyes because it's hard to imagine. The stones, I mean, stones are incinerated, turned to nothing. The mud all around the altar is gone, right? The dust is licked up. The water vanishes, right? Have you ever seen what happens when water and fire mix? Not this, right? This is amazing. And in these moments, Baal is exposed for who he is. A false god with no ears, no eyes, no lips, no power, He is a God who will not answer. Indeed, he cannot answer. Yahweh reveals himself for who he is. The God who answers powerfully and decisively and completely. He is the God who answers graciously as he seeks the the hearts of his people. That's how Elijah prayed in verse 37. It says, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, you, Yahweh, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. See, that's the, that's the purpose. Right? That's the purpose of this show of power and glory. So the, the people's hearts would be turned back to him. And then we keep reading the consequences for the defeated prophets. Elijah kills all of them takes them down to the river and slaughters them, every one of them, which if you're anything like me, makes you squirm a little bit. It seems a little extreme, like that escalated really quickly at the end of this story. may even seem unjust for God's prophet to do something like that, but keep in mind, the prophets of Baal were engaging in horrible and perverse practices and enticing Israel to do the same, right? Child sacrifice, Sexual exploitation, public prostitution, self-mutilation. These are considered evil on all accounts. The execution of false prophets was not 
an act of anger by a capricious prophet, but rather an act of God's righteous judgment on evil. And the author tells us that the rain came, just as God promised it would. Remember, he is the one who brought the drought in the land because of the spiritual drought of his people, and he returns the rain as his people return to him. It's an incredible story, isn't it? And the message is pretty simple. If God is anything, he must be everything. If God is anything at all, he must be everything. Now, I hope those framework questions spark some thinking. Right? I, we get up here every week and we offer our thoughts about the text. Uh, I hope and pray that as you hear God's word read and retold, that there are, there are ways the Spirit is teaching you about who he is and who we are as his people. I hope those framework questions were helpful. But I do want to make a few observations for us along those lines, and we'll take them in reverse order, starting with God's people. What did we find out about Israel from this story? I'm sure you saw this. God's people are sitting on the fence. God's people are sitting on the fence. They can't decide who to serve, who to worship. And verse 21 is such a central point in this story. Elijah's first word to God's people, he says, stop limping between two opinions. Two different gods. How long will you go limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. The word limping here, it means to fluctuate, to waver, to go back and forth. It's often used uh, to describe hobbling on crutches. And Eugene Peterson, he paraphrases it like this. How long are you going to sit on the fence? If God is the real God, follow him. If it's Baal, follow him. Make up your minds. That's right at the heart of this story. If God is anything, he must be everything. We can't be on the fence with God. It's either hot or cold, in or out, with him or against him. If God is anything, he must be everything. Now, many of you are familiar with the acronym FOMO. Right? It's a real thing. Fear of missing out, as silly as it sounds. Um, you can just Google FOMO. You'll find articles uh, explaining the psychology of it, offering tips to overcome FOMO. I know, it just sounds so funny to say it. There's all kinds of things, recent findings on this idea, but it's not, it's not a new idea, this fear of missing out. In a very real and dangerous way, we see Israel dealing with religious FOMO right here in this story. Because of their religious fear, fear of missing out, they don't completely turn away from Yahweh, right? They want to keep him over here. And yet they also want to, they want to follow Baal, worship the gods of the day, of, their, of the peop, the culture, right? Well, look, Baal, like he's supposed to maybe help us with this famine thing. Maybe we should worship him too. There's a fear of missing out on what of what another God might offer. And before we shake our heads at them, we are often on the same fence today. We find ourselves in a culture where, just like Israel, we are limping between the gods of our choosing. We're a culture that's pretty comfortable on the fence. 
In fact, either side of the fence can seem culturally offensive. For one, we are a society built on religious pluralism. Religious pluralism, this ideal that allows different religious systems to coexist as equally valid, right? Even if those beliefs are mutually exclusive or, or oppo are opposed to one another. This is certainly true in our day, is it not? Any kind of exclusive or decisive claim about truth or religion is seen to be arrogant or oppressive. We just sang an entire song called This I Believe. We believe those things to be true. And just like God's people then, we're swimming upstream when we say that God is the only true God. That he alone can offer the, offer the rescue that all of us, all people throughout time and history, desperately need. No, it's far easier in our day to be sympathetic to other religious systems or worldviews, or at least to give people credit for being sincere, right? As if some sincerity will get us very far in the end. We're a culture that is uneasy with exclusivity, even as we all must hold particular views that necessarily exclude others. But we need to see the foolishness of religious pluralism because that's the water we swim in. And of course, it's one thing for a society at large to be okay with religious diversity. It's another thing entirely for God's people to serve other gods alongside of him. Most of us get this. Maybe a more subtle danger for Israel then and for us today is what's called religious syncretism. So both pluralism, or I'm throwing some, maybe some new words out here. There's pluralism, but there's also this idea of religious syncretism, which is the blending of two or more religious belief systems together to form a whole new religion. And in the case of this story, right, this is the mixing of the Baals with Yahweh to the point of creating a different set of beliefs and practices. And we do this today, even if we're not bowing down to physical statues right here in our, in our weekly worship. More likely, we'll mix in some values or practices that are culturally held, but not necessarily Christian. And the danger is that we'll lose biblical Christianity altogether. A couple examples. Take consumerism. Do you think that we have mixed our Christian faith with our cultural love for consuming things? Don't answer that out loud. I'll answer for you. I think we have. Or our hyper-individualism, right? Which leads to a private relationship with God only, right? You will not find just me and Jesus in the Bible. But that's often, that's often the way that Christianity is, is framed in our day. Or maybe one of the most pervasive is how the American dream has made its way into our faith. The ideal that every person should have equal opportunity to, to achieve success and prosperity through hard work and determination. Now listen, the American dream isn't all bad, right? Hard work and determination are not bad ideals, but they are not necessarily at the heart of the Christian story, right? In fact, Jesus redefines success, and it's not very dreamy. He reframes the good life. The suffering is expected and redemptive. Victory comes through defeat. Life actually comes through death. And listen, these are just examples of ways that we can blend the God of the Bible 
and the faith that we, see, that we find in Scripture with our current day. And if we're not careful, we can find ourselves worth worshiping some, someone or something other than this God. We'll just have a fictitious deity that is made in our own image instead of a God who has made us in his own. Now, much of what we learn about Israel is true for us today, right? We cannot limp back and forth, sitting on the fence with our lives. And certainly what we learn about God from this story holds true this morning. That was our other question, right? What do we learn about God in this text? And there's no clearer declaration than the people's declaration in verse 39. They say this, the Lord, he is God. Yahweh, the Lord, he is God. Now, the, the people arrive at this truth after witnessing God's power at Carmel, right? But until this point, they had abandoned Yahweh for the empty promises of false gods. It's what the Bible refers to as idolatry, which can sound antiquated and primitive, right? But is alive and well around the world and in our very hearts. Just because we don't bow down to other altars doesn't mean we aren't prone to idolatry. We all turn to things in hopes of finding rescue and worth and meaning and validation. But none of the things that we turn to in this world are capable of accomplishing what our hearts desire. Just like the prophets of Baal crying out to their God, our idols of power and sex and money and fame and security, they will not answer us. I think one helpful and very simple definition of idolatry comes from theologian G.K. Beale, who says that an idol is whatever your heart clings to and relies upon for ultimate security. Whatever your heart clings to and relies upon for ultimate security. Or Tim Keller has, he says, it's good things turned into ultimate things. Both, both good definitions, and, and we could say a lot about idolatry. We talk about it quite a bit as a church. But one thing specifically from this story that I want to highlight, our idols are not just hollow gods, fake gods, or even false gods. Our idols are destructive gods. Our idols can so easily get us to a point where we say, I will do whatever it takes to be blank. I will do whatever it takes to achieve blank. I will do whatever it takes to get this, right? They demand more than we can give, and they destroy us. Idols always overpromise and underdeliver, every single time. Now, the prophets of Baal, they resorted to self-mutilation in hopes of getting the attention of their God, and they got nothing but blood, bloodshed in return. And when we turn to anything other than God for our rescue, our security, our worth, our validation, we'll either be crushed by the silence, right? none, of our, none of those gods can answer us, or we'll find ourselves crushed by the demands that our idols make on our lives. Either way, the psalmist in Psalm 16, verse 4 is right. He says, the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. And God takes idolatry seriously because we all become what we worship. And God has called us to become like him, right? Reflecting his goodness and character in the world. 
as we worship him, as we were designed to. But when we worship hollow or deceptive or worthless idols, we become hollow, deceptive, and worthless image bearers. At stake in our worship is our hearts. And really, this is why Elijah is confronting God's people. He confronts the idolatry of Israel in hopes that everyone would know that Yahweh is the true God. He is the the powerful, merciful, living, just God. That's the way that Elijah prays in verse 37. Remember, he says, answer me, O Lord, answer me. He knows that this God that he prays to can answer him. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. See, God's wrath on the, on the prophets of Baal is an act of love towards Israel, preserving and protecting them from becoming hollow and deceptive and worthless. And we need that same protection, don't we? Idolatry is destructive for God's people then and for us today. Like Israel, we are in danger of sitting on the fence with our worship, limping between different promises of the good life. Or believing that it doesn't matter where we land or what we believe so long as we're sincere. But nothing could be further from the truth. And the stakes are just as high today as they were then. So just a couple questions to to close us for some heart diagnosis this morning. These have been helpful for me even in the last few days as I've reflected on my own heart's affections, my desires, my daydreams, the things that I think about that I think will give me rescue couple questions. First, where, where are you sitting on the fence? Is there an area of your life that you're unwilling to commit to God? What does your heart cling to for ultimate security? I mean, really? What do you think will make you secure or whole? Where are you turning for refuge and affirmation? What are you willing, where are you willing to sin to acquire something and keep it? What will crush you if and when you lose it? Where do you spend the majority of your time, money, affection? What do you desire too much? I love this quote from David Pallison. It says, the evil in our hearts the evil in our desires often lies not in what we want, but in the fact that we want it too much. Natural affections for any good thing become inordinate ruling cravings. The things we desire in life make good goods, but terrible gods. Are there good goods in your life that are becoming gods that cannot hear or answer or save you? And finally, is God everything to you? I know that's a, that is a big question that is hard to answer. It's been a good lens for me this past week, even in the past several hours as I've been preparing. Is God everything to me or am I holding out for more? Am I wanting to set aside another God that might fulfill this or that? If God is anything, he must be everything. The people concluded on that mountain that the Lord, he is God. And of course, they, 
They saw him answer their need with fire from heaven. It is truly an incredible story, but it's not the best one. This is just one scene in the bigger story of the Bible where God fully shows us who he, who he is and how he loves his people. Where we see that God doesn't just send fire from heaven, he, he doesn't actually even stay in heaven, right? He comes down to be with us as a human, to walk in the brokenness of our world, Jesus came to rescue you and me. And he does so on another mountain. Right? The display of God's glory and justice and mercy on Mount Carmel was just a taste and a preview of, of what would happen at Calvary, where Jesus offers the perfect sacrifice, right? Once for all, for sin, the greatest expression of who God is who God is, and how he loves his people. On Mount Carmel, God brought rain in the third year to defeat the drought, but at Calvary, God resurrects Jesus on the third day to defeat death itself. And listen, Jesus did not live and die and rise again to give us one more option. He came to be our one and only hope. This is why God, if he is anything, he must be everything because only our God gave up everything to turn our hearts back to him. Only our God offered himself as the sacrifice in our place. Only our God gave up everything so that we wouldn't need anything but him. Let's pray. God, thanks for including this incredible story in your revelation to us about who you are and your plan for redemption. As we know, that all of scripture is pointing to the fact that you came down to be with us, to offer a sacrifice that could, that could meet our deepest needs, that could offer us a life of hope and joy. God, forgive us for sitting on the fence, for turning to other things for our worth, or rescue. God, we want, we want to say with your people in this story, you are God. You are the living, powerful, merciful, just God. And we do proclaim that this morning. I pray that our lives, that we would live in accordance with that proclamation of truth. That we, we would live as though you really have given us all that we need in your son, Jesus. Help us towards that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one way that we as a church every week proclaim that to be true is in the taking of the meal, communion, together as a people. We gather in groups of four to six, take the bread, dip it in the cup, as a way of proclaiming that Jesus broke his body and shed his blood for us so that he could be our everything. We could find everything we need in him. So here at Christ Community, we, we practice open communion. You don't have to uh, be a 